So some of you remember years ago when I was younger and a little more naive, I used to tell some jokes to begin the sermons. And um, the problem with doing that is that the jokes that are funny are not appropriate. And the jokes that are appropriate are not funny, okay? So that's your dilemma. But here's a couple for you this morning. Uh, a young man called his mother and he excitedly announced that he had just met the woman of his dreams. He said, mom, I'm gonna marry this girl, I promise you. And his mother said, well, sweetie, why don't you send her flowers, invite her over to your apartment for a nice home-cooked meal? And so he did. Well, the next day the mom called her son and said, well, how did it go? And he said, mom, it was terrible. The evening was a complete disaster. Well, well what happened? Did she not come over? Oh no, mom, she came over, but she completely refused to make me a home-cooked meal, like you said. Here's another one. In a small town, there was a Methodist church, a Baptist church, and a Christian church. And the ministers were friends, and they decided, hey, this weekend, or in a couple weekends, let's have a revival. And let's put on our best face, we'll baptize people, we'll give our best sermons, and, and then we'll compare notes. And so they did it. And then the Monday after the revival, they, they met, and, and, and the Christian church minister said, uh, asked them, well, how did it go? And the Presbyterian minister said, great, we picked up three new families. Very excited about that. Well, the Methodist minister said, ours went great as well. We picked up four new families, all excited to be a part of uh, the Methodist church, First Methodist Church. And they looked at the Christian church minister and they said, so how did it go for you? And he said, it went really well. We got rid of the seven families that caused us the most problems at our church. <laughs> I can go all day if you want, but I'm gonna stop. Last Sunday in Romans 12, we talked about what it means to be a Christian. And I told you that Romans 12, nine to 18 is one of the best passages of scripture describing the Christian life. We should go back to it often. Paul says this, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal, be ardent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, extend hospitality to strangers. Strong words, powerful words. Today we press ahead into Romans 13. And Paul, as he often does, gives us some very challenging words. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Why, why does Paul say this? Well, what's the message that he's trying to get across? You know, it's funny how people will, will cite this passage often when their party or their candidate is in power, but they don't like to cite it that often when their party or their candidate is not in power. Isn't that interesting? I don't have to tell you that American politics is kind of a mess. No matter what your political leaning might be, and we got a purple church here, we're proud of that, you probably agree with that. It's divisive, it's hostile, it's polarizing, it seems to have a winner-take-all mentality. It divides families and friendships and churches. And, 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 and one more thing, it's always right out in front of us, thanks to social media and thanks to cable news. So what do we do? 
with these challenging words of Paul in Romans 13. There's no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. You know, in this country, we can vote people out after a certain period of time, but how do you think Christians feel who live in third world countries where governments exploit and murder and starve and pillage their own people? Well, what do they make of this text? Government is necessary in nations because without it, there would be even more chaos than we already have. But what is always hotly debated is the role of government, the scope of government, and how much government should be involved in your life and in my life. My friend and mentor, New Testament scholar Fred Craddock once said that government exists to take care of the people who can't take care of themselves. That sounds nice, but, but unpack that and get more specific. Jesus said, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. Ultimately, we are accountable to God. And if there's ever a conflict between what the government is asking and, and what we believe God is asking, our ultimate allegiance is to God. And God has given us some specific laws to live by. Find them in the Bible. And in America, some of these laws are reflected in our legal system, though not all of them. What are the laws that I'm talking about? Do you remember what God said to Moses back in Exodus on Mount Sinai? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. How are we doing with that? Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. The Ten Commandments, often called the Decalogue, became the basic law of Israel, a gift from God showing his people what it looks like to live in a covenantal relationship. The the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God, and the last six deal with our relationship with each other, and we ignore these commandments to our own detriment. Now, only two of these, you shall not murder and you shall not steal, can land you in jail. If you do either of these things in American culture, you can be punished. But it's up to us as people of faith to pay attention to the other eight. When we break these, we seem to run into many other problems. Again, God has given us these commandments for our own well-being. Further along in chapter 13, Paul says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the, love, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. All of the commandments can be summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Of course, Paul got this from Jesus, who when asked, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. So so why do we have such a hard time doing this? 
Why do we fall short so often? As Paul says, why do we do the things that we know we shouldn't do? And why do we fail to do the things we know we should do? And we do the things we know we shouldn't do. You remember that passage from, from chapter seven? Why? Megan and I got married 14 and a half years ago. Kind of hard to believe. Um, May 16th, 2009, my dad officiated our wedding right here at Woodmont. Uh, it was really interesting coming up with a guest list when you were the new pastor of a big church. It's like, well, does he like me or does he not? I've been there like two years, right? Um, but that was one of the most joyous occasions of my life, up, up there with my three children being born and TCU winning the Fiesta Bowl last New Year's Eve. But when we got married, we decided that we should probably go outside of the family to get premarital counseling. So we did. And we went to somebody that we have gone back to time and time again over the years to check in, to, to talk through things, to make sure we're doing a good job, to be proactive. You know, I, I always tell couples that I think that's healthy. I think that's smart, right? Make sure you're on the right track. But here's what you don't know before you get married. Marriage is a tremendous joy, lifelong companionship and support, but it's also hard. And then you bring three children into the world, or two or four, in Farrell's case, six, and it's even harder. You know, I told the Woodmont Preschool parents a few weeks ago that they're entering into one of the most challenging parts of life, nurturing their marriage, raising their children, building a career, earning money, cultivating friendships, and navigating all the other stressors all at the same time. It's not easy to do that. And we can all hit our breaking point. M. Scott Peck, famous psychiatrist, wrote that classic book called The Road Less Traveled. First published it in 1978. I was two years before I was born. And do you remember how he begins the book? He says, life is difficult. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. But then he says, once we know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. In other words, it's a given. I like David Brooks's metaphor of the two mountains. Some of you remember that, uh, that book he wrote? The first mountain of life, we seek to establish ourselves. We leave home, we get our education, we break away from our parents, we become independent, we build a career. Uh, then we, 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 we get married and, and, and start to establish our family. And so a lot of times the first mountain is about survival. We wanna be respected. We wanna do things that will matter, that will be viewed as important. Uh, he says on the first mountain, we all have to perform certain tasks, establish an identity, separate from our parents, cultivate our talents, build an ego, secure ego, try to make a mark on the world. And so people that are climbing the first mountain spend a lot of time thinking about reputation management. How do I measure up? Where do I rank? What do other people think about me? And so there's a lot of time that goes into that question. It's on the first mountain that we we date, you get married, you start a family, and, 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 and it's, it can be really stressful. There's a lot to balance. Then he says, then you got the second mountain, 
which is a major shift in thinking. And sometimes we choose to move to it and other times something in life happens that throws us on it. Cancer, a divorce, suicide of a friend or a family member, an addiction, alcoholism, bankruptcy, unemployment. There are lots of things in life that happen that can throw us into the second mountain. And we start to wonder, is this all there is? Isn't there more to life than this? Why do I feel so empty and unfulfilled? We get sick of the rat race, the constant competition, trying to prove who can accumulate the most money and the nicest stuff and status. It's fun for a little while, then it kind of grows old. The second mountain requires a major shift in priorities. And so he said, if the first mountain is about building up your ego and defining the self. The second mountain is about shedding the ego and losing the self. If the first mountain is about acquisition, the second mountain is about contribution. If the first mountain is elitist, moving up, the second mountain is egalitarian, planting yourself amid those who need and walking arm in arm with them. But here's my question. Whether we find ourselves on the first mountain or the second mountain, or some mixed version of the two, which is possible, by the way. Whether we're 35 or 55 or 75, where do we find joy and contentment? If we acknowledge that life is hard, that it's full of trials and tribulations, what can we do on a regular basis to experience more joy? First, I think Paul would say this. I think he would say, if you want to find more joy, you have to live by faith and do your very best to make good decisions. And for Christians, that means living life the way that Christ wants us to live. You know, Paul says, let us lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness and not in quarreling and jealousy, but live the way that Christ wants us to live. You see, joy is found when we live in the light. Joy is found when we live by the Spirit. And then in Romans 14, Paul says, we don't live into ourselves and we do not die into ourselves. If we live, we live into the Lord. And if we die, we die into the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And friends, this is very different from only living for self and only looking out for self, which is what so many people in our world are doing. The second thing I would say, if we wanna find joy and, and contentment, is that we have to recognize that we find it in relationships. Life is not meant to be alone. God did not create us to live alone. We're social beings. And it's in relationships that we become complete. It starts in our marriage and our family. Then it extends to our friends and our community. But, but here's what many people forget. Relationships have to be cultivated. They cannot be put on cruise control. They cannot be neglected, which means we have to decide which relationships should receive our attention and our effort and which ones maybe shouldn't. It's been well documented that people now have fewer and fewer friends than they ever did before. If you did a survey and said, can you name two or three really close friends? 
way fewer people can do that now than they used to be able to. Why is that? I think it's because many people don't make the effort. Many people don't reach out to others. Many people don't invest in their marriage, their children, their grandchildren. And then they wonder why they feel all alone. I like Johann Hari's concept that depression is not just a chemical imbalance. I mean, that's definitely true, but it can be the result of lost connections. Not having the relationship with people that we used to have. Losing touch with people that we used to be around. And Hari says that as a culture, we've become disconnected. And as that's happened, depression has just gone up. We need each other. We have to support each other. The third thing I would say this morning is that if you want to find joy, you got to remember that it's found in serving. We know this at Woodmont. We're going to offer a class starting in a couple of weeks to help you find your spiritual gifts. Jay and Beth and Tammy are going to lead that. The past two weekends, we've had people out at the Habitat Build uh, Saturday and Sunday. And, and, and if you wonder, look at the pictures in the spire and look at how much fun they're having while they serve. Or at least they look like they're having fun. In a few weeks, we're going to build another disaster relief house on the south part of our property that will be shipped up to Kentucky to help a family there. Then, then, then you know, last Sunday, our youth went to Project Cure. Room in the Inn is coming up very soon. Uh, uh, service to others is a sure way to experience joy in your life. And Harold Kushner once said, if you're feeling down, go help somebody. Then you'll feel better. And life is full of opportunities to help others. The fourth thing that I would say about joy is that joy is found in laughter. We need to laugh more with each other, at each other, at ourselves. Laughter is the shortest distance between two people. Our world needs more laughter. You know, remember my story from COVID? COVID was such a nightmare for churches for all kinds of reasons, but you know, you hadn't seen a family at church in a while. Hey, been missing you guys. Oh, we're being real careful. You know, we've been making sure that, you know, we're just being careful. And then I took Wade to a five-year-old birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. Who was there? The family being careful. <laughs> Thought you were being careful. So I love lawyer jokes. Lawyer dies and goes to heaven. St. Peter says, welcome, we're so glad you're finally here. And the guy says, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, according to your billable hours, you should be 485 years old. <laughs> Lawyers are like, that's not funny, Clay. I don't like that. <laughs> or the IRS agent that called the Catholic Church, the priest answered, is this St. Luke's Parish? It is. Are you Father McEnany? I am. Did Bill O'Brien give $20,000 last year to your church? He will. <laughs> Laughter is important. And being around people that don't take life so seriously all the time is important. Um, sometimes when we get stressed out, when we get overwhelmed, the first thing to go is our sense of humor. And that's not a good thing. Lastly, this morning, if you want to find joy in your life, I believe that joy is found in forgiveness and in gratitude. Why is that? It's because when we forgive others and we move on, we release a giant burden off of our shoulders. And sometimes we didn't even know that we were carrying it. We all screw up, we all hurt, we all get hurt, but forgiving somebody and letting it go is one of the healthiest things that we can do. I didn't say it was easy, but it's necessary. Jesus told us to do it. And then when you're grateful for the blessings that you have, you're not always focused on what do I want? What do I not have? What do they have? 
because you're grateful and you'll be less anxious. Yes, life is hard. It's full of challenges and frustrations. It's full of disappointment, but we can't let that from keeping us from finding our moments of joy. And guess what? Joy will surprise you when you least expect it. Paul says, owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Amen.